it. Uh, I was there for just over five years uh, with a wonderful congregation uh, in Darien, Connecticut. Uh, during the summers, I actually would lead a group of folks, uh, mostly teenagers, but uh, also uh, folks from varied ages. We'd go down to West Virginia, and it was part of a, a long partnership that we had uh, with a community there in Dunlow, West Virginia. Well, one, of my, one of my jobs there when I'd go with the group was I, I had to drive a van uh, because I had a special license to do so, and so I was oftentimes invited uh, to drive a van route while I was in West Virginia to go pick up some of the locals and bring them to the community center. Of course, when I would get ready to head out, I, every year I'd get the same warning uh, from folks to be careful of what they called hollers, which was kind of a local pronunciation uh, of a roadway. And what that was was a, a roadway that went into some pretty remote terrain. It would start out as paved, and then it would become gravel, and eventually it'd go into a dirt road. And then after that, possibly no road at all, just kind of like open wooded space. Sometimes they skipped the paved part altogether. It just went, went gravel right to nothingness. The friendliness of the locals there, they didn't want me to get lost in the mountains, I think is what their, their hope was there. And as I stand here now, you can see I, I didn't get lost, uh, thanks to them. Well, the book of Colossians, in a lot of ways, I was thinking about that this past week. When you think about the run-on sentences that Paul uses, particularly at the beginning, and just the barrage of topics and ideas that come out, it kind of feels like if you're a reader, you're, you might be straying down a holler of some kind here. Uh, it, it begins paved and well-marked uh, from the beginning of Colossians, but quickly it turns uh, to feeling lost in the mountains. This morning's text uh, can have that effect as well, but I assure you that is a well-marked-out text. It's actually, there's a chiastic structure that exists there uh, with kind of uh, two or three different main thoughts that are in there, and you'll notice that they start out. You'll see the thought at the very beginning of our text is repeated again at the very end of the text, and that's that chiastic structure. It kind of moves A, A, B, B, C, C. So when you get to the middle there, the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2 kind of mirror each other, and you'll see that going on there. So there is some kind of structure, so we don't get totally lost out on the holler here. But I want to bring us back here uh, to something that we talked about a couple weeks ago, a passage that we had looked at uh, to get us started here. Acts chapter 9, if you remember the, when I mentioned that, and if you know the story, it talks about uh, the conversion of Saul. Uh, when Jesus calls him to faith in Christ, but also calls him to a, a calling to be this missionary or apostle to the Gentiles, uh, there's a little account that we read in there about a disciple named Ananias, uh, who's in Damascus, who has a, a dream vision in which he's in conversation with Jesus. You'll remember in verse 15 of chapter 9 of Acts, uh, Jesus is talking uh, to Ananias and says that Paul is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. And, and that sounds like a rather important role uh, if we were just to stop there. But then, then verse 16 happens. Jesus says, I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so our passage this morning out of Colossians picks up at one of those accounts of Paul's suffering as part of that calling that Jesus had for him, that very particular calling. But the strange thing about our passage is the way that Paul interprets his present circumstances. I would imagine that if we were in a situation similar to his, described with suffering and struggle, that it wouldn't be surprising to hear uh, someone ring out with a sense of self-pity. But here in Paul, in his writings, we hear joy. He says this, I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. Just so we don't miss this, 
Uh, N.T. Wright in his translation says it this way, right now I'm having a celebration, a celebration of my sufferings, which are for your benefit. Come on, Paul. Come on. What would possess you to say that kind of thing? Really? You're rejoicing in your sufferings? That doesn't seem to make much sense. It doesn't, it doesn't compute in the uh, American mindset. It seems so un-American uh, to be one who rejoices in suffering. Linda Rodriguez McRobbie says this in the Boston Globe. She writes in a, a May 2018 article. She says, American self-image is as a nation of rugged individualists who tamed the continent, dug the Panama Canal, and put a man on the moon. Yet the quest for comfort, for softness and sameness, for friendliness and familiarity, for a place to plop down and relax in peace, seems perfectly natural and fundamentally American. The frontier spirit may be part of the national psyche, but Americans are still lounging, and you hear this word, in athleisure outfits and choosing vehicles for their cup holders. We like, we like comfortable lives. But suffering is the furthest thing from being comfortable. And it's certainly not anything for us Americans, at least from our perspective, to rejoice in. But yet here's Paul doing exactly that. So we, of course, have to ask why. Paul, why? <laughs> what's, what's the deal here? And here is what Paul will do. He'll actually direct us to something that makes it all worth it. He identifies what he calls the mystery of Christ. And this mystery, this mystery not only uh, defines how Paul sees his present circumstance, but it also serves as his life calling. So what, what is that mystery? Let's take a look at that here. Well, common in the Greco-Roman uh, world of Paul's day, there were so-called uh, mystery religions or religious schools. Of course, as the name uh, implies here, these schools held secret initiation rites and they had uh, practices that were guarded by the members. Uh, and this might sound strange and peculiar uh, for some here uh, this morning as you, as you participate in worship until you realize that it's not, it's not too unheard of in modern America. It's actually secret societies and brotherhoods with closed meetings and secret handshakes. We're uh, familiar with several uh, fraternal orders that might have that sort of thing going on. Uh, even religious sects that exist uh, where practices are introduced to adherents over a period of time as, as the adherent demonstrates uh, greater levels of faithfulness in that particular system. Uh, folks like the LDS or Mormons uh, have that type of system set up. Scientology, of course, is that type of system. And these continue to gather adherence and attention uh, participants with each uh, generation. Exclusivity carries a kind, a real kind of appeal, I think, in all uh, societies and at all ages. And so there was a time uh, when the mystery religions of Paul's day were cited as the basis, as the basis or the backdrop for Paul's own idea of mystery in Colossians and elsewhere. Of course, Paul uses this idea of mystery 20 times in his writings, with half of those occurrences actually uh, happening in Ephesians and Colossians. So supposing here that Paul has borrowed from Greek religious and philosophical ideas uh, to construct the Christian faith, this is all part of that same uh, type of thinking, uh, and that whatever Paul came up with in regards to the Christian faith would be something that's totally unrecognizable uh, to Jesus and his earliest followers. That's, that's how the idea goes. Uh, and this idea, of course, was popular in the early or the first half of the 20th century. 
It came from what's called the history of religion movement. But scholarship has changed here on this point. It doesn't see a borrowing here at all. In fact, what it, we now understand uh, is that Paul's use of mystery here is actually drawing on imagery that was common in Judaism. It's common in the Hebrew Bible. It's also common in, in other writings of the day. Uh, we think of uh, things like at Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls and that community uh, where they talk about uh, mysteries in the scripture that require spiritual enlightenment for understanding. And so here's what that looks like. In Daniel chapter 2, we encounter the word mystery. If you were to read the King James, it would say secret. Uh, it's using the Hebrew word raz, uh, and it's associated with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. If you remember how that story went, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he, he wants his, uh, his wise people, the sorcerers or whoever else is in his court to interpret the dream, but he doesn't want to share with them what the dream was because he's afraid uh, they would then try to uh, fool him or pull the wool over his eyes or something like that. So he says, you've got to know the dream so you can interpret it that way. I know you have power to be able to do this. Well, of course, the secret uh, is later disclosed uh, to God's servant Daniel by God. So here's something that is once concealed and is later revealed by God. And that's the word mystery there. So once concealed thing, it's now made known or been revealed by God. And, and that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about this, this mystery of Christ. He talks about the secret. It's something that was once concealed, but has been now revealed. And what's revealed here brings to sharper focus who God is and how God saves. Now, before we go any further, I think we need to acknowledge and I know this is going to be very corny to hear this. The Ephesian in the room. It's kind of like the elephant. The book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians actually share a lot of common similarities uh, with our text. Particularly, our text relates to halfway through Ephesians chapter 2 and through the uh, first half of Ephesians chapter 3. You'll see a lot of similarities uh, between language and ideas that are shared there. So much so that you might actually read those two books side by side uh, to get some understanding on even a wider picture of these categories that Paul is using here. And this idea of mystery is further unpacked there in Ephesians. Know what Ephesians 3 actually says on this. It says, beginning in verse 5, In former generations this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed. See, you see that usage there of how it was once concealed and now revealed. But he goes on to say, To his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what's been revealed? Well, in Ephesians, it is that Gentiles have now become fellow heirs and share in God's covenant promise, or we might say new covenant promise here. The emphasis on fellow heirs, Jew and Gentile, is, it's probably directed to a specific issue uh, there within the Ephesian audience. Uh, and so there's great attention brought to that. Um, who exactly belongs in the new covenant and how one joins is probably at the, the center of that conversation. Uh, do you have to become Jewish uh, in order to experience those benefits is probably a big question there. But it's not featured as predominantly in Colossians. We don't, we don't see that as much in, in this book. So it's possibly suggesting that the folks at Colossae aren't having the same struggle or at least not on that same level. But we should hold this in our backdrop, of course, and we should have this since Paul, who's a Jew, is writing to the Colossians, who are predominantly Gentile, uh, that this is certainly uh, in that background that makes out this, this idea of what mystery is. And so 
as we hear this about the mystery, we also hear in Colossians this in verse 27 of our text. To them, or his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And then Paul tells us what the mystery is here in Colossians, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The you here is plural. So we might read this as being, and borrow from our southern friends again, Christ is in all y'all. He's in you, plural. And that's big news. And, and here's why. Well, first, God is with you. The notion that God is with his people Israel, that's, that's well attested in Scripture. In fact, Exodus chapter 29, verse 45, uh, will say it this way, I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. That's pretty specific, pretty particular. And this wasn't just meant to be ceremonial or symbolic. Uh, in fact, it's understood as something that's quite serious. In Numbers 25, you'll see this at the end of that uh, section that talks about prohibitions against defiling the land, particularly when it relates to uh, blood oaths and, and murder and that sort of thing. Uh, the reason you don't defile the land is because that same land, uh, God dwells in it. Uh, you see that in verse 34. Uh, the land is sacred because that is where God dwells with God's people. But God's dwelling with God's people wasn't only in a corporate way. We actually read uh, throughout the Old Testament that also on occasion, uh, God is described as dwelling with individuals in a very personal way. Uh, and we see this not only from uh, eyewitness testimony, but we also, or at least personal autobiography, but we also see this from the observations of different characters throughout Scripture. Pharaoh, for instance, observes that Joseph is one in whom the, uh, is the Spirit of God in Genesis chapter 41. Uh, God describes Joshua as being a man in whom is the Spirit in Numbers 27. Daniel is said to be endowed with the Spirit of the Holy Gods in Daniel 4. Uh, we read at one point that the Spirit departs from Saul. Another point that David prays the Spirit would not be taken from him. And of course, Peter, talking about the prophets in, in Scripture, uh, notes this in 1 Peter 1, uh, that the prophets prophesied of the grace that was to be yours, made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the persons or time that the Spirit of Christ within them uh, indicated when it testified in advance the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. So corporate, yes, with Israel, but also fairly localized where God's people are. That's where God is. And sometimes individual and sometimes personal. But there's going to be a shift here. And that shift is something that Joel 2 says uh, much about, and it's repeated again in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And Jesus will speak to this in John chapter 4 uh, when talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. And this shift is confirmed here by the Apostle Paul, who claims here that Christ is in you, Christ in you, Gentile congregation. That Christ is in you. Not you in Christ, which conjures up a different kind of picture here, but rather Christ in you. That's dwelling language. And make no mistake who dwells in you, Colossians. The one that the apostle recognized just a few verses earlier as the image of the invisible God. The one in whom all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. The one who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's who's in you. The one who dwelled with Israel now dwells with them. Now dwells with us. And that comes with great benefit. In fact, it's extraordinary benefits that we hear in Scripture. Paul saw not only benefit here, but he saw benefit for himself, but also for the church. Ancients held that wisdom and knowledge are common, or were common goals to be pursued uh, during this time that Paul lived. And so we can see this as we consider the philosophical traditions that are handed down uh, even to us from that era. But in Scripture, we find reference to less scrupulous individuals, characters who have invaded the church at different points and who different letters are written to, uh, to, to bring the church back to greater faithfulness. And we realize that some of those folks made claims that they were the keepers of wisdom, of knowledge, of absolute truth. And perhaps that's what's going on here in Colossae and why Paul is speaking towards this idea of knowledge and wisdom. But Paul here identifies the one who dwells in you is also the one in whom, quote, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. One need not look further for ultimate reality, the basis of reality, the one who is way, the one who is truth, the one who is life, is in you. Even more, Christ in you is working to renew you. And Paul will talk about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart, even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. That's part of that benefit of Christ in you. Christ is in you, renewing you, but also resurrecting you. We see that in Romans chapter 8. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal body also through his spirit that dwells in you. And just in case you're wondering if Paul was serious about this idea of God dwelling in Jew and Gentile in the church, Consider his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Plural you here. That God dwells in that you are the temple of that Spirit. A shift has happened, a change has happened, a significant one. And that's big news. That's good news, and that's the mystery that's now been revealed that Christ has come and in Christ dwells with God's people. So what about this ministry of Paul? This one who's still in struggle, this one who's still experiencing suffering. Well, this message of Christ in you is of such importance for Paul and quite frankly for the church then now that Paul literally sees his life work as an active participant called by God to make known, or as Paul writes, to make the word of God fully known, as he says in Colossians 1.25. And as he does, he literally fulfills a prophecy that goes back uh, even earlier generations. Isaiah 66 will say, uh, those who will declare God's glory among the nations. Paul is one of those, those declarers of God's glory, bringing people from diverse settings from all corners of the world uh, into that place of knowing uh, God, truly knowing God and, and having God dwell with them. Paul already identified himself in last week's text as a servant of the gospel. But in this text, uh, he identifies himself as a servant 
of God's people. He's suffering for your sake, the sake of the church. He is the church's servant. We see that in verses 24 and 25. Why does Paul rejoice amidst suffering and struggle? Probably because he expected to suffer. He expects to to struggle and suffer in his role. Uh, At that time, there was something called the Messianic Woe, or it's uh, Ben Witherington actually talks about this in his commentary. Uh, There's a lot of writing about in those last days uh, that there was an expectation that there would be struggle and suffering before the end. And so Paul is probably counting on that. But he also recognizes that his suffering comes with a purpose. As a witness to the suffering Messiah now raised to life, this suffering servant here finds validation as living into who God called him to be. And God also dwells in him. And that's important. Strengthening him. Encouraging him. Renewing him. Resurrecting him. Even though he suffers... Paul is able to continue to reveal God's grace and do so faithfully. And he's encouraged by the faithfulness that he sees in the church to stay the course. So what do we do with that? What do we do with all these these elements of Paul's life of suffering and struggle, particularly if we find ourselves uh, not one who necessarily experiences that kind of struggle and that kind of suffering? How do we... How do we balance this in our own Christian life, our own discipleship walk? Well, I know, and it doesn't take any imagination because I, I receive uh, notes and letters. I'm on Facebook. I see all kinds of posts uh, from folks. I actually had to unfollow a friend uh, back east uh, this past week. Uh, we're still friends. Just had to unfollow their post. Uh, it's amazing. It's just amazing to me um, just the depth and level of pain that we're experiencing as people. I don't think I should be surprised because we're, we're facing some very serious stuff in our culture, very serious things in our lives. Um, pandemic is part of that, but the number of posts I've seen just about Supreme Court justices and uh, the election day coming up, it's really throwing people uh, into some places of despair and anxiousness and depression. And so this word here this morning for what can we do as those who have committed ourselves to be revealers of God's grace, I think is an important uh, note for us to hear here amidst our own challenges, amidst our own struggles here. Well, the first thing is this, is to recognize that God dwells with you in Jesus Christ, that that's a real thing, that God is in you, uh, that you are, if you think about that ancient world and that temple of God's inhabiting presence there and how that would have brought encouragement uh, to the nation, uh, that you, as God's people, that Jesus lives in you and is operating through you, that God's glory can be found even dwelling amongst you, that there's hope is a big word that comes out at that moment because of that. You're not alone. You haven't been abandoned. That God loves you and dwells with you and continues to do so. The one who is faithful continues to be faithful. And we've been called to a ministry that I call the ministry of the mature. As a youth ministry leader for many years, Uh, I was always surprised by just how many older saints were quick to avoid volunteering with children and youth. I was was always really surprised by that. Uh, Folks would, it was a strange phenomenon, folks would uh, say things to me all the time of, well, I I used to do that, but now I'm retired, and I I don't do that anymore. And that that always struck me as odd, and and here's why. It's not 
It's not that people don't have their own reasons for why they do things or don't do things. But the thing that struck me in that was the fact that from a student perspective, some of the most beloved voices, the ones who spoke deep in their hearts were some of those older saints. How many stories people told of an older saint speaking their life as a child, as a young person. And yet on the other side, uh, these same saints would say, I, I just, I'm retired, I don't do that anymore. They missed a moment of significance. They missed a moment where they could make a great impact. I like what N.T. Wright says here uh, in regards to a story. He talks about how to understand Colossians. And he relates it as far as trees having a conversation here. He says, here's an old weathered and seasoned oak tree talking to the small sapling that's just started to grow up nearby. The tree says, soon it will be autumn and the winds will start to blow hard and cold, but you'll be safe. I'll take care of you. The wind can do its worst to me. I don't mind if I have to lose a few branches here and there in the process. What matters is that while you're young and weak, I should take the full force of the wintry wind on myself and let you grow into safety. That's what Paul's doing here for this church in Colossae. I wonder what it would look like for us, uh, folks who were in that ministry of the mature, to be those rooted oaks, those great trees caring for younger saplings that they might grow in faith. What a gift that would be. Um, what an incredible gift that would be. The third thing is this, is uh, being a witness of God's grace. This past weekend, I actually uh, witnessed the tail end of a car accident on my way home. I was driving, and there was a car that was flipped over on its side uh, coming off of 509 onto uh, Des Moines Memorial over in that kind of area. Uh, the car was flipped on its side and backwards. And as I drove by, I noticed there was somebody in the car. <laughs> and I thought, that's no good. And so I pulled over and um, as soon as I could, and I, I called 911 to report what I'd seen. And it turns out that I wasn't the only one who had seen it uh, to report this. Well, as revealers of God's grace, we as a congregation are in, have enjoined ourselves with that same message and vocation uh, that Paul has. Paul finds himself here bearing witness uh, and that's what we do. We bear witness to what we've seen. Uh, what did you see? Report that. That's what the early apostles reported. They came to a grave. It was empty. They reported what they saw. They saw the resurrected Christ. They reported that. And so for us today, uh, I want to invite us here to join our, our voices and remember something that a pastor, uh, Carl Jacobson, calls the gospel according to Colossians here, or even the answer and antidote to a creation is strange and hostile. Here's what Carl says. The firstborn of creation made the firstborn of the dead makes of us the firstborn of faith. So because of that transformation, as revealers of God's grace, we're reminded that alone is worth revealing. That we and those God is calling in this community, in this world, and as we participate in that witness, that's a worth revealing, revealing God's grace, but even more as we do, to be ones who rejoice in all circumstances. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning for your great love for us. We thank you that that love is a sustaining love. Sustained not because you are distant and far off, but because you are present and near, that you dwell in us, that you dwell with us. Lord, how magnificent is that presence of yours. But how great are the clouds and the fog that we find ourselves in where we miss, we miss seeing you 
I pray today, Lord, that for your people uh, participating in worship and those who hear this word this morning, that that fog would be lifted. They would, they would once more be encouraged by your great love for them. That just as we are called to be ones who reveal grace, that that grace would be made known uh, in their hearts and their lives today, that it would be transformative uh, for their day, that they too might say, even amidst struggle, even amidst suffering, we all might rejoice, for our God is with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this is a practice we've started here.